The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, not just here or here, but everywhere. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. The in-dash OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Welcome, Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast and Part of the team's on the road. I'm Stephen Jodron here in Wisconsin. Jake Watroba in Minnesota. And in San Antonio is Armand Kafai. He is covering FC Dallas as they continue their journey in the U.S. Open Cup. They'll be playing San Antonio FC. Armand, your first game on the road, huh? How exciting. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I mean, right now I'm located a few minutes outside of the stadium. Uh, actually passed by the stadium on the way here. It looks pretty nice for... Uh, USL Stadium, and I mean that's why I guess they're one of the teams that are in the expansion race. But it's it's a fantastic day. It's beautiful outside. When, and when I say beautiful, I mean it's like a hundred degrees, and I'm sweating. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean can't really ask for anything more. I'm gonna watch some great soccer tonight. Yes, uh, follow the show at Unc Sam Soccer Pod because we broke a ton of news. We'll get to that in a moment on the show. We also have Andrew Helms joining us. He wrote the wonderful piece for The Ringer, own goal, the inside story of how the U.S. men's national team missed the 2018 World Cup. It's a brilliant piece. He provides a ton of context into the dynamic of the failure that the U.S. men's national team committed. Jake, how are we doing? We're doing great. We're doing great. Today's been a great day. Today's been great. Well, how are you doing? I don't feel like we ever asked you that. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, I'm nervous because it's been a big day for Uncle Sam's soccer podcast. We broke a ton of news in the last 48 hours. And let's begin to let's go back to the beginning, Armand, where you and I were up late and you decided to turn on ESPN plus and watch MLS Rewind. Take me through what was going on. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if this part is breaking news. I think just being uh, observant. I was going through what was going on, and it was Tara Tolman's opening segment where he goes through each individual story they has. It was talking about FC Cincinnati, and again, I mean, the big story behind that is what? How will that impact the Columbus crew? And he said something that really just threw me off. I have to rewatch it at least three times to make sure I heard it right. He said he doesn't think that the Columbus crew are going to relocate to Austin, that they're going to relocate to Sacramento. And I think one, someone didn't believe me, and I was like, i got to record this and send it to someone. So I recorded it and sent it in the group message, and I was like, wait, this is this is Tara Tolman, who is a pretty credible uh, person in the world of MLS. And I sent it out to you, and um, we talked about it for a little bit, and we were just trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, so 
we we posted that on Twitter. Got a ton of hits. Didn't think much of it. I was surprised that no one else really had mentioned this story or this comment because at the time, before we get to the second part of the story, Jake, you and I went back and forth on whether it was sarcasm, whether it was what he calls spitballing. That's what he tweeted at us. Or did he let something out of the bag that he shouldn't have? Well, (laughs) First of all, let me tell you, I, it's great waking up to Taylor Twelman in your mentions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I check my phone at like 6.30 in the morning and I see Taylor Twelman replied. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Why is Taylor Twelman in, my, in our mentions? Um, yeah, I, I kind of took it as a snarky or sarcastic remark. Um, but I don't think Taylor Twelman just throws out, I don't think they're going to, the Columbus crew are going to move to, Austin, I think they're moving to Sacramento. I don't think Taylor Twelman throws that out just as pure speculation. I think I think there's more to this story than what he's leading on. Oh, absolutely. And then we tweeted out, and we still stand by this, sources have told us, close to the situation, that the conversations between Precourt and Sacramento have happened. To what degree, we don't know. We continue to search for that. But there is communication between Sacramento and Precourt. No idea what this means for Austin. No idea what this means for the crew. No idea what this means for Sacramento. We understand there's a contract at play, and it only bids them to go into Austin. We understand the contract is huge and it's important. We're just reporting what has happened and what we know. I mean, it's... An inter- it's interesting dynamic with the whole uh, Sacramento and Columbus um, uh, thing. I, I don't know how much to read into it. I don't know how much to read into uh, just them talking. Like I said, it could be just like, hey, like maybe I'll sell the, my, this team to a local Columbus investor and then go invest into Sacramento. Because what have we been hearing about Sacramento? That they're lacking investors, right? Or it could be, uh, as some people have mentioned, putting pressure on Austin and say, hey, we want to get this done. We want we want you to move forward. If not, we might have somewhere else. I don't know. Precourt could be BSing for all we know. It could be just, like I said, to apply pressure on Austin. It could be it could be true. I mean, I genuinely do not know. But, I mean, from what we heard and from what uh, Taylor said, I mean, I think there is a little something to look into it. Um, even if it is something to put pressure on Austin, um, I think it's a really in- interesting dy- dynamic that I, I don't know. It-, it-, it threw me off when I heard it. It still throws me off right now because I don't know what to make of it. I don't even know what to make. Uh, to be honest with you, of Columbus to Austin, it's one of those things where weren't we just we were just talking about having an episode about the uh, save the crew, <laughs> Austin, all that, all that stuff, and we're sitting here like I'd say like three, four days later, like we don't even know what the hell to think anymore. I mean, Jake, what do you think? I am just a no. This is this is a totally an, an interesting story, and I'm at, at, almost at a loss for words too at what this what this means or what it could mean for the crew in Austin and, and Sacramento. I, I don't know if like like you said, you kind of laid out the scenarios, Armand, and I don't really know what this means for any of those three cities um, involved in this. Um, I, I do think, though, that Sacramento makes a, a, a lot more sense 
than Austin does, just in terms of market size and and, and the TV revenue it can it can generate. So I, in that regard, it it makes it makes sense that Precourt might try to somehow get the crew to Sacramento. I mean, we we've only heard rumors of that Austin clause too in the contract too. I don't know if that's been confirmed or not. Um, and we're also not lawyers, so who's to say that Precourt can't find a way out of that clause and get the crew to Sacramento if he wanted to? I mean, it's one of those things where you see the link between Precourt and California as well. He's from that. He's from the Bay Area, uh, if, if I remember correctly. I mean, Bay Area isn't Sacramento. I know that, but I mean, there's the California link involved, and it's it's one of those moves where I mean, I, I would say it it makes sense if what Precourt wants to do is apply pressure, and he was like, "Hey, I'm gonna tell people this and this." And we're gonna apply some pressure on Austin because right they need they need to approve it in like the June right they're having the city council talks at uh, for the for the McCullough place and there's been the USL team apparently uh, trying to lobby and uh, uh, or, uh, try to get something done so that so the MLS team will get, won't get made it's one of those things where there's so many things that evolve that I mean this could be just a chess move. Um, to try to accelerate things or uh, just mess things up uh, for Austin's state of mind, or it could be, you know, just something that actually has some legitimate stock in it. What it means, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we just report that the conversation has happened. All I know is Precourt and the Columbus Crew, his team, they want PSV. out. Don't, I want, don't use Columbus Crew. No, Precourt Sports Ventures. Cause, because I mean, when you say Columbus Crew, I think you almost you almost kind of lump the fans into that one, and they they no 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 you no, know Save the, the Crew has been uh, yeah Save the Crew has been uh, a, a, an amazing movement. But I mean, it yeah, it looks like PSV just definitely just wants out, and they're not gonna get, and they're not gonna looks like they don't want to sell. They want to apply pressure onto Austin. Um, yes, that's and, that's my. And then you have the dynamic of FC Cincinnati being introduced to MLS. Now, remember when Garber was asked about the rivalry between Columbus and Cincinnati, and he gave some sort of non-answer, not very relevant, not very important, not very meaningful. And it was kind of dismissive. And I think that's exactly what's going on here is the connection with Precourt and Sacramento is to apply pressure on Austin and trying to leverage themselves out of Columbus even more. Now... That's just my guess. I do not know if that's existing. Uh, I mean, according to Taylor Twelman, he thinks Columbus Crew are going to Sacramento based on his spitballing, quote-unquote spitballing, whatever that means. Uh, I don't think Taylor Twelman will say something like that without actually having some sort of informed opinion. You know, this isn't somebody going in. This isn't Taylor Twelman going to talk about rugby. Okay, this is Taylor Twelman who lives and breathes this sport and this league, saying something on an MLS show. Come on. Like, this is more than spitballing. It is. It is. But like I said, we don't know what to make of it. We're just reporting what we have heard um, from, from, from many people. And, I mean, we have no reason to promote anything else. I mean, there's no reason for us to spread fake stuff or, or, or lies. So um, this is what we've heard. And, I mean, we'll we'll look into it, I think, even more. Uh, that's, that's that's something. I mean, like I said, I was kind of surprised that 
like you said, Stephen, not a lot of pe- that not a lot of people have tweeted about it or anything. That's why I sent a tweet about it and also uh, even I looked into it. I was like, wow, only one, I think it was only one other person that tweeted at Taylor. I was like, yo, you mentioned this, but can you expand upon it? Like, are you just gonna leave us like that? And I mean, it's one of those things. Like you said, Tara Tolman is a very connected guy. And if he, he could be spitballing for all we know. I mean, who knows? Maybe we're reading into it too much. But, I mean, usually when someone says something like that, it's with the knowledge that something else is going on. It's, Jake, just, what do you so think? it's just so odd because we never there, – there was never a Columbus to Sacramento connection before MLS Rewind went up on ESPN+. Plus. Was that, uh, was that Monday or Tuesday night? Monday night. Um, no one, no one was making that connection. No one thought, you know, I, I think maybe the crew, there might be something to the crew moving to, to Sacramento. That was never on the table in anyone's mind. That was never a discussion anyone was having until Taylor Twelman went on MLS Rewind and said, "I think they're moving to Sacramento." I just, to me, you just don't. If you, when you're Taylor Twelman, I just don't think you say that unless you know some, something is going on. He's like you said, Armand. He he lives and breathes soccer and MLS, and you have Taylor Twelman has to, in, in terms of the personalities in the media, has to be one of the most plugged outspoken. in, outspoken individuals um, on TV. Uh, it, it, I mean, look at he's he, and the thing is, he's always you do these expansion. I don't even know what you want to call him. You know, when we do these expansion announcements, Taylor Twelman's always there. He's kind of tied to the hip of MLS in that way. It, it to me, it, it he, there, there's something more to this that it, th- this wasn't spitballing. This this was Taylor Twelman, Twelman maybe accidentally letting the cat out of the bag. Can I ask us something? We're uh, just just real quick. Uh, let's say this crew to Sacramento link. Let's say it's legitimate. Let's say it's not pressure on Austin. What does this mean to the other expansion sides? If you're if you're another uh, team that's hoping for expansion, I mean, you're obviously happy about this, right? Well, that one of those two spots isn't going to be occupied by a Sacramento anymore, right? Well, yeah, well, if you're San Antonio, you're happy. That's for sure. No, but mm-hmm. the, the, the tough things. I don't know if the league wants that because Sacramento would have to pay the 150 million dollar bid entry bid to get to MLS. If the crew relocate, the league misses out on that expansion money. So does the league want that? Now, the conversa- whatever the conversation is between PSV and Sacramento is interesting. If, the pre- if it is a ploy just to get Austin, what does that mean for Sacramento? Does that mean they're a more realistic shot to get to an MLS bid because they are perceived to be worthy of even being talked to by PSV. Yeah, it's not like they're going to Detroit, you know? And remember, geolocation, there's a ton of different dynamics that go into play. The, I personally believe the crew will leave. I, I see almost no chance that they stay. Based on what I have read and who we've spoken to, I think they're going to get up and leave. PSV either sells the club. Okay, PSV will get up and leave. Whether or not the crew stay behind is a different dynamic. But PSV will get up and leave. 
whether it's yeah, selling whether it, selling the club to uh, yeah. local investors or uh, uh, moving the team uh, to Austin. I mean, it's it's one it's one of those things that you look at and you're like, like Jake said, in regards to the whole thing, you don't realize. No one ever made that connection of Sacramento and PSV, and now that's just casually mentioned. It really, I think, just threw people off, and I threw the say the crew people off because they're like, "Wait, what's going on? Which way am I being tugged?" You know, it's, um, I mean, it's it's a tough situation for crew fans now. I mean, if it is spitballing, I mean, I don't know if it's a thing you can really spitball about. Like, what's no. the rationale? Like, what's you the rationale? Spit- it doesn't make any sense to spitball it because this whole time we've been told the crew can't move anywhere but Austin. So why, like, why, why make that connection to Sacramento in the first place? It, it, no, it, it, it really is baffling. Like the more you think about it, why is he going? Why is he saying this on an MLS show? Granted, it's on ESPN Plus, so you had to get a crappy video to watch it. Uh, like uh, what we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but change your change your uh, fire detector uh, <laughs> detector battery. By the way, but I mean, it just it's just kind of like why would you say something like that? It's really out there. It's either really false or holy crap, there's some merit to it. And boy, is there a story there to follow up on. Right, and um, we're we're going to try our best to see if anything is going on so listeners we will do our best to follow up on this story so please follow us on twitter unksam soccer pod we are doing a support local soccer giveaway with brog uh a club in the upsl giving out a jersey and i know armand loves his jersey so armand, i love jerseys it's a pretty sexy jersey is it not I, li- I like it to be honest with you so there you go but anyway up next is the interview with andrew helms Talking about the U.S. Men's National Team. Well, it's a privilege to have our next guest on the show, Andrew Helms. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew underscore Helms. He co-authored with Matt Pence own goal, the inside story of how the U.S. men's national team missed the 2018 World Cup for the Ringer. He's a freelancer in New York. He's written pieces for the for Vice, The Guardian, The Ringer. How's it going, Andrew? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, we're great. We're great. So uh, let's just begin with the basic. Take us through the journey of this story. Yeah, so... Um, if you haven't read it, it's called Own Goal, the inside story of how the U.S. missed the, missed the World Cup. And it was part of it was a story I've wanted to do for a while. I've always been kind of fascinated by uh, the, both the promise of the Klinsman era of the national team. Kind of, you know, you have this guy with this massive ambition to reform the way the team plays, to kind of take the team from uh, soccer's kind of middle class into the elite. You know, we're going to compete with Spain and Germany. And then to see that end five and a half years later in failure was always a, a story that I just wanted to try and sink my teeth into and try and tell. And to then have, you know, a year after his firing, the team failed to make the World Cup. It just seemed it seemed possible and like maybe the perfect, uh, perfect in a tragic way, ending to to that to that tumultuous period that ultimately we would as a country fail to qualify for the World Cup. So woke up the morning after 
the Trinidad game, you know, a little hungover, like all of us kind of not, not quite sure what, what I just witnessed, you know, how did this team fail to qualify and called my buddy, Matt Pence, who's a soccer writer in Seattle and said, Hey man, do you think, do you think there's something there? And he agreed. And so, um, basically for the next few months, we just started, you know, contacting every source we had in, in American soccer and seeing what we could hear. And from there we put together a narrative and, and the ringer was interested in, in having us tell the story. And from there, you know, we just spent months reporting, trying to talk to as many people as we could to, to hear what they thought happened. And the story is kind of the, the distillation of all of those things and the taking everyone's, everyone's thoughts and, and kind of assembling it into a, a compelling narrative that we hoped would appeal to both, you know, diehard soccer fans, but also would be accessible enough to the casual sports fan who's now, you know, turning about to turn on the world cup and expecting to see the U S men's national team. And is thinking, Oh, geez, what happened? Why is the team there? So trying to kind of hit, hit both of those levels. Andrew, it really was a compelling story. I found myself kind of having that depressed gut punch feeling that I had the night uh, we we couldn't get a draw in Trinidad. Um, when writing this story, conducting interviews with members of U.S. soccer, what was your biggest takeaway from this disaster? That's a great question. Um, I, I think my biggest surprise and the biggest thing that was surprising to me was just how some of the big decisions inside U.S. soccer got made with regards to who is the national team coach. You know, I kind of I talked to Mike Edwards, who for 10 years was the was the vice president of, of U.S. soccer. And Mike, you know, is a great guy. He kind of came up through the he was, you know, a referee in Albuquerque and just kind of rose his way through the ranks. But but for, for being the vice president of U.S. soccer, Mike Edwards was nowhere near the decision-making room when the big, crucial national team coach decisions were being made. And he said, look, I, I shouldn't be involved in that. But the fact that, the fact that I wasn't is just a testament to how insular a circle um, were making a lot of these decisions, from Suno Galati to the president of U.S. soccer to Dan Flynn, the CEO, and to a small cohort of you know, outside confidants from Don Garber of MLS to uh, uh, Kevin Payne, who we interviewed for the story, who's a longtime American soccer executive, and and that was the most surprising thing. Just just that that it's really you know a handful of guys who've kind of come up together who make most of the deci- big important decisions for U.S. soccer. Were you surprised that a lot of these decisions were not soccer people in the sense that they played or coached? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the one of the things uh, I think I was saying to you before we started about the kind of the Shakespearean tragedy of it all is mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. have this group, you know, Sunil Galati, Dan Flynn, who Sunil personally, you know, has been uh, driving the bus uh, for the U.S. men's national team in the 80s and would go buy balls at Kmart and, you know, was was one of the architects behind bringing the 94 World Cup to the United States and was one of the drivers of MLS in the early years. And these guys have, have uh, I think, fairly and, and somewhat unfairly, right, have a little sense of entitlement, you know? Who are you to be criticizing me? I'm, I'm the guy who built this sport in this country. I, I've, I've brought it to where it is today, where U.S. soccer has a, you know, $100 million budget and 140 employees and is a, is a massive organization. So 
I think I think they have a they have this sense of their own um, you know righteousness and rightness that they they think that we we know what's best because we're the ones who built soccer in this country. And while that may be true in a business sense, I think as as our story shows and our reporting reveals, they maybe didn't have the best sense of what what it takes to pick a national team coach, um, both both from Klinsman in 2011 to to Arena in 2016, and and both of those choices kind of reveal their their decision making process. Yeah, I want to talk about that coaching decisions, particularly the one in 2016, the second one, where the choices that you guys say were Bruce Arena or Bradley, Bob Bradley now of LAFC. Why them two and not someone else? Were you able to get some insight behind that decision more than what is written in the story? Sure. Um, I can elaborate a bit. I mean, so to kind of give your listeners a bit of setup, right, it's it's 2016 and there have been problems in, inside the national team for several years so that, you know, players are coming to Sunil Gulati saying, look, it's just really not working out with Klinsman. His his methods, his tactics are, are too divisive. And and so when when Sunil Gulati is looking at making this choice, he basically felt you know, we're, it's too late now. If I'd wanted a new coach, uh, it would have had to have been, you know, in 2014 or 2015, if I'd wanted to go get, say, a, a brand name international coach or entrust a young up-and-coming American coach, say, a Peter Vermees or a Jesse Marsh with the national team uh, or even a Tab Ramos, right? I, I'd want to give them more time to acclimate to the job. So operating from those constraints, he basically realized, look, this is a salvage job. We're going to, because when he made the hire, right, we already, we were down 0-2 in the hex. So um, this is a salvage job. We've got eight games to get to the World Cup. We've got we've to do it. And so who am I going to get? I'm going to get someone who's done it before. So that's a, na- a short list of two, pretty much. It's Bruce Arena or Bob Bradley. And relations with Bob were still pretty strained from the way that uh, Sunil kind of started negotiating with Jurgen while Bob was still the coach. And so... Uh, pretty quickly, the, it was a short list of one, um, and it was it was Bruce Arena, and just I think it reveals just the the way that that organization thought and made decisions um, and and delayed decisions, right? Because they they knew that there were issues with Jurgen for years, and they did nothing. So uh, yeah, I think that's that to me is maybe one of the most uh, frustrating things about the whole story is just it's just learning about how how we knew things were wrong and we didn't make a decision until it was too late. And then the decision we made was to go back to, you know, a former national team coach who'd been fired before. Andrew, uh, in the story, and I think you kind of alluded to this in, in your previous answer, Gulati seemed to really be unsure of when to fire Klinsman. Um, it seemed like the, the, the Dan Flynn, uh, emergency, um, Heart surgery definitely delayed things. Uh, I think you said six or seven months in, in this story. Mm-hmm. But but how how he handled that whole situation? How much blame do you think should be placed on his shoulders, or how much blame do you think others within U.S. soccer, you know, put on him? Um, it's an interesting question. You know, I think I think Sunil's pretty defensive of his choices and his decision making, and I think. You know, you read his public statements. It's 
uh, after the Trinidad game, it's, you know, you don't make decisions based on a ball going uh, two feet wide, you know, the reference to the Clint Dempsey shot that hit the post. So um, I think, I think in Sunil's mind, he thinks more or less, you know, the, that we, we had a bad run. Uh, we had a bad bit of luck, you know, this perfect storm of events happened and we missed the world cup, but that doesn't mean the sky's falling. Uh, I think elsewhere, I think people are a little more critical and, and, and look at the, the, the delay to fire Jurgen, the failure to, you know, I think the, the thing that's so interesting is how much Sunil had invested his own personal capital in Klinsman and, and to how reticent he was to give up on the Klinsman experiment because it would also admit that, you know, his handpicked coach, the guy he'd, he'd gone out of his way to fire Bob Bradley for, the guy he'd tried to get, um, you know, because as we go back in the history, right, he tried to hire Jurgen in 2006, he tried in 2010, and he finally lands him in 2011. And so I think it, it, it was a heavy lift for, for Gulati to, to fire the person who he'd, who he'd courted for so long. Now looking back, do you think U.S. soccer would have made the same hirings? It's a hard question to answer. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, would would the same people have made the same decisions? You know, uh, I think probably just given the lack of uh, reflection on the part of of. And unfortunately, this is one of those situations where I'm thinking about people I've spoken with who I can't tell you I've spoken with, and I want to reveal those conversations because they answer your question directly. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to think, how do I can say it generally? But it's generally that, that I think there's a general lack of reflection upon the people in positions of power um, with regard to their role in the failure. And so, I mean, yeah, I, I, think, I think the thing that that is true is I, most of the decisions would, would be the same. You know, would Bruce Arena maybe throw on a second midfielder if he could do that game again? Yeah, probably. Um, but, the, but the crazy thing to me is, you know, nine times out of ten, the U.S. wins that game in Trinidad, you know, or gets the draw they need. And so uh, it, it's, I think what's, what's, what's troubling is you, we really, the, you know, I've been getting a little criticism from folks on Twitter and social media being like, you know, this story is not harsh enough on U.S. soccer. Why aren't you exposing, you know, the Soccer United marketing MLS, whatever. And my point is like, look, it took, it took a freak set of occurrences to have people just be willing to open up about, you know, some of the, the poor decision-making that happened inside U.S. soccer. And you're criticizing me for not trying to like, you know, not being able to expose you know, your, your belief that there's this like massive corrupt system that runs the sport in this country and that is designed is trying to suppress the game at all levels. It's like, whew, get a grip. And, and I think in some ways, you know, that, that it, the failure is, is the one thing that kind of allowed us to be a little more critical and be uh, not just at, at the structures of U.S. soccer, but more importantly about the way decisions are made and, the way, and, and how people hold power and why they hold power. And so um, it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but uh, I think most of the decisions that were made would, wouldn't be changed because the people involved uh, are not incredibly reflective about their choices. With that said, I'm hopeful that uh, a lot of those guys are no longer in power and, and, uh, <laughs> and that this new generation of leadership 
has recognized that that maybe one of their own weaknesses was their inability to to be self-critical. Andrew, in the article, um, you talked about uh, Jeff Cameron and Bruce Arena not really seeing eye to eye. Uh, could you expand on what led to that? Yeah, I mean, I think you talk to folks, though, Jeff, um, Jeff's a difficult guy and was a difficult guy under Jurgen too. Um, he's a guy who's not happy when he's not playing. Um, I think the difference with, with Jeff and, and, you know, you talk to other folks who say, you know, the Jeff Cameron criticism, you know, his, his article that came out, you know, I, if Jurgen would have been there, you know, the folks who were speaking to Jeff at the time more or less say, look, Jeff, Jeff was also ready for Jurgen to go. So it's a little bit of revisionism on revisionism on Jeff's part to say, that he's this diehard Clemson supporter when, when for a while Clemson and Cameron butted heads just cause you know, just a strong headed guy. Um, I think, I think the place where the, the arena Jeff Cameron relationship broke down is, and it's one area where, you know, I think you have, I have a lot of sympathy for Jurgen is, you know, Jeff looks around at his national teammates and he, he, he sees Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, Tim Howard, Brad Guzan, Clint Dempsey, you know, all the kind of, top players of his generation came back to MLS and he stayed in Europe and kept on fighting and grinding out results um, in the, in one of the most difficult, difficult leagues in the world. And that's exactly what his coach had done. Right. Jurgen Klinsmann had said for years, if you want to be the best, go play in the best leagues. Right. And, and I think he, he really respected that message uh, that came from Jurgen and respected the level of experience that Jurgen brought, brought to the team. And so it was a big adjustment for Jeff to, to go from, you know, being coached by a guy who won a World Cup with Germany to being coached by Richie Williams and Kenny Arena and Matt Reese, you know, guys who were, uh, you know, MLS players who hadn't had, you know, necessarily big international careers. And Jeff thought, why do I have to listen to this guy? I'm a Premier League player. And so it just from the get-go, it was, there was just, it was not a, it was not a happy relationship and the two sides just really didn't see eye to eye from the beginning. And, you know, it culminates in this scene um, on the bench in Panama when the U.S. is up, you know, three or four nothing. And Jeff is allegedly on the bench saying to teammates, look, you know, I should be out there. Why is Matt Beasler playing? Why is Omar Gonzalez playing? I'm better than those guys. They're, I'm in the Premier League. They're not. Um, and, and that message filtered its way up to Arena's assistance. And that was kind of the nail in the coffin for Jeff Cameron's career with Arena, and he almost got sent home. But and he ended up sitting on the bench in Trinidad, kind of growling and being upset. Um, but that, I think that kind of gives you a window into just the the culture clash that occurred between Jeff and and the Arena team. And I think an important caveat to note is that a lot of people look, say, "Look, you know, that's not necessarily representative of everyone." Jeff's just Jeff's just Jeff. Jeff's an interesting guy with his own stuff so to to draw broader conclusions from the jeff uh arena beef is tough but i think it does speak somewhat to this you know this bigger question about europe mls uh, what's best for american players and how that fault line can kind of um how that fault line continues to be an important one it was the fault line that really divided the klinsman era and it's the one that, you know, continued to be an issue in the, in the arena days and, you know, will, will continue to be an issue about uh, for, for U.S. soccer for years to come. Well, I'm, I'm, you kind of just answered my question, but 
even uh, I know Jeff Cameron, we just talked about it, but among players uh, as a general, is there a divide between the MLS based and European based players? And do you think that continues, that trend continues today and that's going to influence the next regime? We just had a bunch of youngsters get called up and everybody's super excited and it's it was like 80 something percent of them were based in Europe and i just wonder how this dynamic is going to to work itself out i i mean i think that this dynamic became an issue but it became an issue because of the leadership right okay. um you would hear stories about european guys would come in and they'd uh skip a couple practices and then would have the ability to play in games on the weekend with no kind of repercussions. And then you have kind of the, that's at the low end. Then at the extreme end is what we reported about Timmy Chandler, where he, he gave Bobby Wood some advice and said, Hey man, if you're injured, don't play in the game. You know, it's just a, it's a little knock. Your club team pays your bills. And that was just like a complete reversal of the, of the old U S men's national team ethos of, you know, I'm going to run through the wall for this, for this country. Um, and so I, I honestly think that those problems became problems because of inconsistent leadership. You know, the, the coaches set the expectations for the players. Um, and the way I, the analogy I've kind of used about the Klinsman years, it's like, it's like when you have a bad teacher who, you know, punishes a student for one thing, but doesn't punish the same student who does the same thing, right? how that kind of fosters resentment and division. And it's, you know, even if Jurgen wasn't aware that he was playing favorites, he was. And so, you know, if you have a better coach who's more consistent, who sets clear expectations, uh, you're not going to have those problems. So my hope is that whomever U.S. soccer hires is a coach who's able to set clear expectations for, you know, this is what it takes to earn a spot in the lineup. And I don't care if you're, you know, playing for Kansas City FC or Barcelona, uh, Sporting Kansas City or, or Barcelona, you know, the expectations are the same. Um, and if players will respond to that, and I think that's the way to cut down on locker room problems. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. I feel like we could pick your brain for hours um, on this story. Uh, on the show, we do a little uh, shameless plug, so uh, go away and uh, plug anything that you want. Your Twitter, uh, Instagram, whatever, whatever you're into. Uh, yeah, so just follow, follow me on Twitter at Andrew underscore Helms. And uh, I also, I've, I've been working on the soccer magazine 8x8 for a while. So if you're a fan of, of soccer and design and good writing, uh, we just put out a World Cup issue with David De Gea on the cover. Lots of really cool stories inside. So if you're if you're a soccer fan and you know want to want to read about the World Cup and the players who will be there, uh, not from the United States, I'd I'd say pick up a copy of Eight by Eight. Awesome. Good on a coffee table. Absolutely, I love that magazine. Actually. Anyway, Andrew, we appreciate yeah. it, and I uh, hope to have you back on sometime. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Take care. Okay. Big thank you to Andrew Helms. Uh, if you haven't had the chance yet, head on over to The Ringer and check out Ongol, the inside story of how the U.S. men's national team missed the 2018 World Cup. Uh, a lot of insight he provided. Uh, he was a, we, we were on a little bit of a time crunch with Andrew, so we didn't get to ask everything we wanted. Uh, but, Stephen, what were, what were your uh, takeaways from uh, talking with Andrew? You know, this is something that occurred to me 
while I was on Reddit, just reading comments to the news that we broke, uh, it was comments regarding Save the Crew, and and it just made me realize that soccer in America is here. The politics behind the hiring of Jurgen Klinsmann, the firing, the hiring of Bruce Arena, the players, the the aspect of MLS versus being in Europe. The politics is very real, and we're just as big of a soccer nation as we are, as they are in France or in Spain or in Italy. It's here. We just don't really see it in the papers. It's not really printed in big shiny colors like you see in other areas around the world, particularly South America and Europe, even in Africa. Uh, but it's it's soccer is well and alive here in America, and it should be time that we treat it as a proper sport. Most definitely, I don't feel like. 15, 20 years ago, something like this would have been written about U.S. soccer. I think it, you know, the U.S. didn't qualify for the World Cup. Oh, yeah, okay, great. Who cares? It's soccer. Now, now it's a big deal. Now we're analyzing every little decision that was made over the last seven to eight years that led up to that moment in Trinidad. No, Jake, you're right. Anyway, listeners, follow us on Twitter, UncSamSoccerPod. We'll be back next week with an awesome episode. Still want to do a save the crew type of deal, but with the news breaking today, we're not too sure how it's all going to work out. So stay tuned. We might have to postpone it a week or two. Until next time, listeners, take care. Dunkin's new wake-up go-tos mean you never have to choose between breakfast meats again. Now you can get a wake-up wrap with bacon and a wake-up wrap with sausage for $3. That's savory and sweet, crispy and spicy. It's everything you love about breakfast for $3. Wake up your day with new wake-up go-tos. Get two egg and cheese wraps for $2 or mix and match your favorite meats with two bacon, ham, sausage, or turkey sausage wraps for $3. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Exclusion apply. Limited time offer. With Metro and the best deal in wireless, whatever your goal, however you hustle, you can rule your day. Get two lines with 5G access included for just $35 a month per line, period. With taxes and regulatory fees always included, so you know exactly how much you pay every month. All on America's largest 5G network at no extra charge. Plus, at Metro, get the latest 5G phones, like a Samsung Galaxy for less than 100 bucks when you switch. That's the best deal in wireless, so you can take control of your day wherever it takes you. Metro by T-Mobile, empowering you to rule your day. Requires auto pay. First month is $40 per line for two lines. Samsung A51 requires port from eligible carrier and ID validation limited to two per account. Coverage not available in some areas. See Metro by T-Mobile.com or store for details.